Beijing bets on and has largely placed a winning bet on the Chinese language and the particular ways these are phrased and places they're stored are going to stymie U.S. analysis. So even though all of this is in the open source, we won't notice it or we won't interpret it properly. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The New York Stock Exchange halted trading of three Chinese telecom companies on January 11th. American investors will no longer be able to invest in these companies after November 11th, 2021. This follows an executive order from Donald Trump last November that U.S. companies doing business with Chinese companies are indirectly funding the Chinese military. Also in January, the Trump administration added the Chinese National Offshore Oil Corporation, CNOOC, to a U.S. Pentagon list of companies that are either owned by or controlled by the Chinese military. That will force certain U.S. investors to divest there as well. On Wall Street, there's plenty of consternation about what comes next. That's why Rain founder David Lawrence gathered a panel of network experts to discuss best practices. Included are Rain expert Emily de la Briere, co-founder of Horizon Advisory, where she leads the China research team. Chip Ponce, global co-head of the K2 Integrity Financial Crimes Risk Management Practice, and Michael Gershberg, a corporate partner in Fried Frank's Washington, D.C. office and member of the International Trade and Investment Practice. Let's listen. First of all, it's a great privilege and honor to have uh, Michael, Emily, and Chip um, for this podcast to help basically unwrap uh, a very, very fluid and obviously important area, uh, economic sanctions and um, some of the profound questions that are being asked, not just simply uh, by the private sector, uh, but by policymakers, academics, as well as uh, within the media. So I want to first thank you guys in advance uh, for your time. Uh, Michael, maybe I'll start with you, uh, a little bit of context in terms of uh, your practice at Freed Frank and obviously the inbound inquiries, but maybe you can just uh, set the table for us in terms of the current landscape and uh, recent pronouncements uh, from the Treasury Department about sanctions and uh, their use as part of uh, policy tradecraft. Sure. Uh, thanks very much, David. Economic sanctions have been a favorite policy tool of administrations in the past, but but certainly also of the Trump administration. And we've seen over the past few years a proliferation of economic sanctions, um, mostly administered by the Treasury Department, uh, in particular by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control. And sanctions historically have targeted foreign countries and foreign persons that have been acting contrary to U.S. foreign policy or national security. Um, What we've seen more recently is sanctions have been evolving and have been promulgated by the executive and also in some cases by by Congress um, in in new areas, focusing more on um, different activity, including human rights and corruption, and particularly what we're going to discuss today are some of the sanctions aimed at China, focusing on China's policy of military-civil fusion, and 
the U.S. government, Treasury in particular, has implemented a number of uh, programs, both sanctions and export controls and investment uh, restrictions um, with an eye towards uh, China's civil and military fusion. Uh, in particular, President Trump issued an executive order last November that would prohibit U.S. persons from investing in publicly traded securities of companies that have been identified as communist Chinese military companies. Uh, and this list has included a number of large Chinese companies, not really global companies, but based in China. Some of them are traded on U.S. exchanges. Many of them, uh, the securities are part of uh, indices and, and have been important for financial instruments for uh, a number of companies. So it, that's the high level. I'm happy to get into some of more of the nitty gritty, but this most recent round of sanctions um, did come into effect after a 16 grace period came into effect um, in January, January 11th. And now it is um, starting to hit a, a number of U.S. and even non-U.S. Uh, companies in uh, the financial sector and asset managers that need to look at their portfolio and make sure they do not have exposure to a number of these um, companies. Generally speaking, the goal here on behalf of the U.S. government in, in the waning days of the Trump administration is to make sure that U.S. capital is not being used uh, by Chinese companies to develop their military intelligence and, and other um, security apparatuses in a way that might be detrimental to U.S. interests. That's a great, great overview. And obviously, people are, various companies and institutions um, have felt the seismic change under their feet in terms of what business they can do, what they can't do, uh, investments they can hold, various derivative products, and um, the exercise to sort of understand who's on the other side of various transactions and whether, you know, potentially they're now exposed to significant legal, regulatory, uh, and reputational risk. And Chip, uh, because you've have worn the hat both in terms of being a senior member of the Treasury Department and now leading the Financial Integrity Network to help advise leading companies and states in terms of issues around illicit trade and sanctions compliance. Um, what appears to be happening, and I'd, I'd like to throw this out for your comment, is that these times are almost unprecedented in terms of the impact of U.S. regulations on trade, finance, investment, and broadly commerce, uh, particularly with respect to one of the most significant economies in the world, namely China, and that these changes have happened very, very quickly, and people and institutions just assumed and thought they were engaged in financial transactions now realize that they're actually very much part of a geopolitical regulatory scheme and geopolitical conflict 
and um, trying to adjust very, very quickly and to understand what is being promulgated and why and what are the levers here. And maybe you can unpack that a little bit for us. And in particular, I'm, I'm sure the audience is aware, uh, the New York Stock Exchange uh, went from listing some of the leading Chinese companies in the in particular in the telecommunication space, to delisting, to listing, and then delisting uh, them again uh, within a couple of weeks. And most recent headlines have a variety of very significant institutional investors delisting and uh, unpacking some of the leading companies in the world from their index portfolios of investments. But maybe you can give us a little bit of um, the context of why this is happening, why now, and why so quickly. David, thanks so much for that introduction and for inviting me to join. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, Emily and Michael. And uh, it's it's a great it's a great topic. And um, as always, time is really the enemy here because there's so much to talk about. Uh, I think what might be helpful just to to address the 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 question that you're asking about the pace and the unprecedented nature of the changes that we are witnessing in particularly the last uh, over the last several months of the Trump administration with respect to sanctions policy and sanctions policy um, involving China. Um, it's useful to back the lens up first and maybe recognize that this um, unprecedented bilateral uh, set of economic measures and targeted sanctions is happening within an evolving mission of combating financial crime and um, addressing threats to our national security and our financial system through economic and financial measures. Um, simultaneous with these developments involving China and sanctions, uh, our listeners, your listeners are probably aware or, or may be aware that the U.S. has just adopted the most comprehensive reform to its anti-money laundering regime since the post-9-11 Patriot Act. And what's interesting about the relationship between these developments is that you have, on the one hand, the reform of our AML-CFT system through a legislative, uh, uh, a legislative act that uh, squarely recognizes that the, that the very objectives of what we are trying to do are changing. And so you take the history of the Bank Secrecy Act, which is 50 plus years old here in the United States, and has primarily been statutorily codified as, as, a, as a regime to enable our, our financial institutions to provide information useful to law enforcement and other government authorities. That fundamental mission has been, fun, has been changed at its core through legislation adopted uh, on January 1st, to reflect the reality of what exactly you're talking about, which is that the purpose of our anti-money laundering regime is actually to protect our financial system, the integrity of our financial system, and to safeguard our national security. Um, how, how do we do that? We do that by continuously assessing and managing risk in that system of illicit actors. Who are illicit actors? Illicit actors, in part, are those that the government deems to be threats to the U.S. national security. How does the government identify those? In part, through the implementation, the adoption of various sanctions programs targeting various threats. So you start to see the connective tissue between a system 
that is coming to terms with its responsibility to not function as a service provider to government authorities and providing useful information, but to actually own the risk of understanding and assessing what may be illicit or threatening within the system, including their institutions. That's a pretty fundamental change. And in the context of that, being given more information and more responsibilities to um, identify and assess those risks in ways that are increasingly complicated. And, and that gets to many of the unprecedented characteristics of this particular sanctions campaign um, involving China, in which, as Michael has, has noted, this last set of measures associated with Chinese military companies is, is unprecedented in its own right and follows on the heels of a series of sanctions programs targeting different aspects of China's behavior as a government um, and as a paramilitary civilian um, military fusion complex. And that encompasses other sanctions programs um, targeting that, that, uh, that infrastructure that are perhaps equally complicated. So I just wanted to provide that perspective. That's a lot, I know, but it gives us a lot to, a lot to go on. Um, and then turn it back to you. All right, Chip, first of all, very helpful. Let me stay with you uh, for a moment. Um, what has happened here, and I'll just sort of speak from the corporate viewpoint, is that these are not issues that popped up overnight. Obviously, they've been building. But what has happened with somewhat unprecedented speed and with expectations of compliance on very, very short order these have been sort of seismic shifts of the expectations that are now imposed upon companies that have invested a great deal of capital, people, uh, their reputations, and also uh, various partnerships in an interconnected global economy. And this is now has to be unwound very, very quickly. And so the question is, what caused this seismic shift so quickly? And particularly when you look at the time requirements for compliance, and I'll call it the lack of a full comment period, what's driving the urgency here? I think the urgency is is something that you can see as perhaps the sum being greater than the individual parts of the equation. And what I mean by that is when you walk back what has been a series of sanctions measures against different activities emanating from China, what you see is uh, behavior that involves uh, perhaps unprecedented suppression of uh, the weavers in Western China leading to human rights related sanctions. You see um, the suppression of individual rights and liberties in Hong Kong in a way that is completely at odds with um, a, a one China, two systems policy that the world was operating under as an assumption of um, Hong Kong quasi-independence. You see um, Chinese technology companies uh, uh, gathering more and more information on U.S. persons and others in ways that may be uh, perhaps used, um, exploited in ways that um, can can be can be dangerous to those persons in the countries where they come from. You see um, export uh, controls that are being evaded to build 
um, uh, prohibited uh, prohibited uh, goods and technologies associated with WMD proliferation. You see um, a, a, a blurring of the commercial and military um, use of those technologies um, within China, while that while the military in China is is continuing to flex um, regionally and globally. Um, so when you look at each of those developments, and I'm just rattling off um, more or less what we've seen in the past year to year and a half of different sanctions programs involving China. When you look at any of those issues in isolation, they are of concern. When you look at them as a as a as a whole, I think there's growing um, a concern that that there is a very different and aggressive posture from the Chinese government. Uh, with respect to um, uh, it's it's the perception of itself in a in an interconnected globalized economy and world, and whether this is a, a government that sees itself as um, uh, incorporating into the norms that have governed the evolution of the post World War II um, uh, order, or whether it is a regime that sees itself challenging and upsetting that order, is fundamental. I think, to trying to interpret these individual developments um, in a way that, again, I think makes these individual developments um, perhaps um, more more significant as a sum than when viewed as individual um, individual uh, developments in and of themselves. Emily, um, I know that for a, a fair amount of time, uh, you have been following the developments in China, and Chip has talked about a, a number of catalysts here that are behind the recent pronouncements of sanctions. And there are human rights issues. There are uh, issues involving uh, possibly military objectives. There are issues involving, uh, we'll call it espionage and the theft of industrial secrets that have come up. Um, just yesterday, another professor was charged with the failure to disclose uh, various financial ties uh, with China. And there were also what I'll refer to as um, some of the geopolitical objectives that China has with other nation states that are viewed as adverse to U.S. and Western interests. And maybe you can talk about some of these issues that you're, you are following and your perspectives on that, and most specifically, because uh, you and I have talked about this before, um, the Chinese, when they issue um, various public pronouncements and various reports, and they convene their Congress, are often rather open and transparent about where they're going and why they're going there. And possibly you can weave in, uh, not simply what you've been following, uh, but what public or open source documents have been saying about the current environment. Thank you, David. And thank you for including me in this conversation. I think as you suggested, that last bit is the place to start here because all of the policies, strategies, programs, abuses of human rights or international standards that the U.S. is currently responding to are themselves a function of China's overall ambitions and strategy. And it's very clear when you look at Chinese discourse and when you look at Chinese policies and resource allocations that 
Beijing very explicitly wants to and has for a long time wanted to use the international system, manipulate the international system in order to leapfrog, in order to establish global dominance. And this gets to Chip's point because he laid this out very well. Beijing does this by weaponizing integration and cooperation, by establishing places of influence in the global system in areas that aren't traditionally seen necessarily as competitive um, or as, say, security domains. Beijing does this by entering into asymmetric agreements um, with its role in international organizations and relationship to international standards being a great example. And then Beijing uses these positions of asymmetry and influence to set international rules or standards and to build international infrastructures. And I mean, the idea underpinning all of this is that in today's environment, you can establish global dominance, not necessarily by using traditional military means, but by shaping the architecture of the world order um, through what appear to be and really are like peacetime modes of competition. So once you establish that like overall ambition, the other programs that we've talked about and the U- that the U.S. responds to serve as pillars of it. You have the military civil fusion program as a core, and this is a program that entails the dual transfer transfer of resources and actors and positioning between the military and civilian, so that precisely China can use commercial domains um, or tools and civilian domains and tools to further its coercive national power. Human rights abuses, forced labor, what we're seeing in Xinjiang is a, a function of China manipulating and circumventing international standards and norms, um, and be a signal of the sort of authoritarian global presence that they intend to establish. Um, theft of technology is one of the key means China uses to develop the capacity necessary to propel its international leapfrog. Um, Beijing steals technology or obtains technology from abroad so that it can have the national power it needs. These are all different strands that fit together in a larger strategy. They're strands that in order to understand and understand the risks of, you very much need to be looking at the Chinese system and the Chinese strategies. And they're also strands that have been going on for a long time, but as China's presence becomes more assertive and more aggressive, the U.S. is finally just now picking up on or picking up on the extent of them. And as it does so, I think this goes back to the question of why everything is kicking so quickly into gear now that we are seeing all the hydra heads, we realize the extent of Beijing's ambitions and presence, and there really isn't any choice except to kick into gear and respond because the structural contradiction is not going away anytime soon and Beijing's ambitions aren't, and they're right here and now. Emily, thanks for that uh, overview and explanation. Let me just uh, push a little bit further on um, this notion that you know, there was an elephant in the room that perhaps we weren't paying attention to and and call it the importance of looking at open source material and open source pronouncements coming out of not just simply China, but some of the other countries that have attracted um, concerns from a Western standpoint and in turn sanctions. Maybe you can just, uh, again, comment a little bit about 
how queer uh, various messages sometimes are, uh, whether it's from China, from Russia, could be Iran, North Korea, etc. Yeah, great point. Because the thing is, everything is out there in the open source, at least you know, from the Chinese perspective. Um, and I'll stay on that one because that's where most of my focus is. But the point is that you can look at Chinese strategic discourse or policy documents or resource allocations and see for the past decades, like precisely what the ambitions were, what the modes of achieving them were, and how those were implemented. The thing is that Beijing bets on and has largely placed a winning bet on the idea that the Chinese language and the particular ways these are phrased and places they're stored are going to stymie U.S. analysis. So even though all of this is in the open source, we won't notice it or we won't interpret it properly. Um, and that has you know, been for a long time a truth and a weakness of U.S. analysis. Um, now, there is growing attention to open source analysis of China's ambitions and means, um, but there's still a lot to be done because there simply is so much information out there. Um, and we're only just now really as like an analytical community developing the tools and the frameworks for properly understanding it. The one other like big hobby horse of mine, if you'll forgive this tangent, is that it's not enough just to find the Chinese sources and to translate the Chinese sources. It's also that there's like a new strategic framework that these fit into from Beijing's perspective. And military civil fusion is a great example of it. It's that new tools or old tools are being used in new ways. And as long as there isn't a grounding in what the Chinese strategic perspective and framework or institutional perspective and framework is, we're not going to understand the open sources in an appropriate way. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. With in-house expertise and a global network of experts, Rain provides more than 400 corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions with risk intelligence and actionable insights from the collective wisdom of our global network. We provide tools and intelligence to help you efficiently stay ahead of emerging risks in five key areas, including geopolitical risk, security and threat intelligence, healthcare, cybersecurity, and of course, legal, regulatory, and compliance. Find out more at rainnetwork.com. Michael, um, there's an expression that um, I used to use at uh, Goldman Sachs, when the big boys go bowling, you don't want to be a pin. And uh, part of that is that uh, while various firms think they're engaged in simply commercial or financial transactions, they're actually engaged or in the middle of geopolitical transactions as well. And recently, uh, in this last week, um, China, just to complicate the picture a little bit more, uh, the Ministry of Commerce um, announced that it was issuing an order, I think it was formally entitled, The Rules on Counteracting Unjustified Extraterritorial Application of Foreign Legislation and Other Measures, that basically was um, the counter to U.S. and Western sanctions and potentially uh, impact any company that is doing business either in China or in partnership 
with Chinese companies. And uh, I'm sure this has, in turn, also engendered a number of questions by your clients. Maybe you can share with us some of the advice um, that you're giving companies that are really struggling to both comply with U.S. and Western regulations and now are doing some business, you know, whether because of their direct or indirect business activities or possibly supply chain exposures, uh, what they should be doing, how they should be thinking about this, and the types of guidance that, you know, can be helpful in in managing a broad range of business exposures. David, you're quite right that a number of U.S. players and even non-U.S. players have been pins in this bowling game. They've been bounced around quite a bit. Um, This particular round of sanctions uh, regarding the investment ban in in Chinese military companies, it really was rolled out uh, in a way that led to a lot of uncertainty. Um, There were no implementing regulations. It was just the executive order. And then a number of FAQs or frequently asked questions from OFAC that are, are published to give guidance. Those FAQs came out, you know, in dribs and drabs every day, it seems, for a little while. It really was an ad hoc response on the part of the government to provide a little bit of clarity in certain respects. Um, but in response to questions and complaints, instead of a coordinated planned rollout of the sanctions program. So what we have seen is on January 11th, the investment ban went into place, and then the executive order was amended just two days later to, in fact, require all U.S. persons to divest from covered securities or other financial products that that had exposure to those securities. Originally, the executive order allowed U.S. companies to hold on to those indefinitely, as long as they weren't sold or bought after a a particular grace period. Now they need to be completely divested um, within one year of the time that the the companies are designated. And there are these guidance FAQs and general licenses coming out every day, um, providing some guidance, but still leaving unanswered a number of questions. So what we are telling clients in some respect is that they should stay close to their um, trade associations. In the case of the financial industry, the MFA, the, uh, the SIFMA, the FIA, a number of organizations that work with um, asset managers, hedge funds, etc. Those organizations have uh, uh, more clout have what you might call safety in numbers sticking together with similar players to develop a consensus of, of what might be a reasonable view within the industry. Um, some of those organizations have filed comment letters with OFAC, even though this was not a formal rulemaking process um, open to, to comment letters. But also, we suggest you know, it, it is worth sending questions to OFAC and raising the questions because the more OFAC receives these questions and realizes that the uncertainty 
is adversely affecting a number of U.S. companies, the more likely uh, the government is to provide some type of guidance. But it really has been a uh, a process that's led to uncertainty. Uh, we are hopeful that with the new administration coming in, there will be a little bit more of an efficient and coordinated plan. But for now, the response is that companies should take what we would suggest the most conservative approach is to look at their uh, portfolio, discuss with their, their brokers, um, and make sure that they are taking steps to divest from any of these covered securities within the, the wind down period. Uh, now, turning to China's response, which is not wholly unforeseen, it, it does add some uh, additional difficulty. It, it does put some companies between a rock and a hard place. The idea of a blocking statute is not entirely new. The European Union and Canada and other countries have had for years similar laws in place that prohibited their companies from complying with U.S. sanctions that the countries did not agree with. That had historically been the Cuba sanctions program, also in Europe now, to some extent, the Iran sanctions. The United States, in fact, also has its own blocking statute. It's called the anti-boycott rules to prohibit U.S. companies from complying with the Arab League boycott of Israel. There was some talk when Russia sanctions were implemented that Russia was thinking of prohibiting uh, companies from complying with those U.S. sanctions. Um, that turned out not to be too much of a, a concern. But China is, um, is now joining this game. It remains to be seen how exactly the Chinese blocking statute will be implemented. It does, on its face, seem to target U.S. sanctions that have an extraterritorial application. In other words, uh, affect the activities of third country companies, uh, not just in the U.S. or China. And it does allow Chinese companies to sue others in Chinese courts if a Chinese company is injured by a third country company's compliance with these U.S. sanctions. Um, you know, historically, U.S. companies, when they were confronted, or um, European and Canadian companies, when they were confronted by this conflict of laws, should I comply with the U.S. OFAC sanctions, or should I comply with the Canadian or EU blocking regulations? The question was often uh, a matter of which side is more likely to enforce its laws and how harshly the answer to that question was almost always OFAC. So in deciding between the conflict of laws, companies would almost always err on the side of adhering to the OFAC rules because OFAC enforces its regulations actively and can impose large penalties, whereas the EU has not, to my knowledge, actively enforced its blocking statute. So it remains to be seen how active China will be in enforcing it and whether it is really a, a private right of action. Um, now, companies might be hesitant to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of Chinese courts in this way. Um, so to some extent, I think this will be a matter of wait and see, but uh, it is potentially the case that the Chinese blocking statute will have more teeth 
than uh, some of the others because it does include a private right of action um, and, and does lead to some risk for U.S. companies that are operating in, in Hong Kong, China, um, and in other countries. So I know I have just highlighted the, the conflict and the challenge rather than, than give some uh, surefire ways to resolve that conflict. But, but I think that will be an open question in the coming years um, and, and maybe does give China a little bit of leverage in, with the next administration um, to hopefully find some ways to, you know, to, to reach some resolution or at least to lower the temperature a little bit uh, in that respect. Michael, thanks. And uh, let me offer a pragmatic, um, just pull out a pragmatic suggestion that you're making. There's been a great deal of confusion about the application implications for second, third degree um, orders of consequences here, and there hasn't been the usual um, guidance or comment period involved in the issuance of these uh, regulations. And what I'm hearing you say is that um, companies need to leverage what, what I'll refer to as their industry and trade groups to make sure that the Treasury Department is aware of the need to clarify and uh, possibly not having considered fully uh, a variety of um, implications for the sanctions and consequences. So I'll take that as a... Um, as something that our listeners can be mindful of in terms of the importance of communicating with the government about the questions and um, possibly the unintended consequences of the sanctions. But the second aspect of what you're saying, and I'd like to toss this up to all three of you, and without being glib about this, um, companies operate most efficiently and effectively when there is a degree of predictability in the legal and regulatory landscape, um, whether it's domestically or internationally. And it sort of suggests now, Michael, that um, companies have to pick their poison uh, between complying with the certainty and, and knowing what the regulatory enforcement scheme is of OFAC and also how quickly actions can be brought. And in emerging law in China, where no one's yet certain um, whether certain actions will be taken. And uh, it, Chip, you may appreciate this in, in particular, the metaphor, but this kind of feels like Companies now have to operate with a Damoclean sword over their head and uh, these moments where they can pick their own poison. Hardly compatible with the growth of the U.S. economy, the global influence and the importance of U.S. corporations abroad. Uh, no less um, what I'll refer to as the protection of, you know, capital people, and reputation. And we've seen how some of these cases can be brought individually as well as against a company. And so I would like to give uh, all three of you a chance to comment, not only um, in terms of 
what companies that are operating abroad, and it's not just simply with China. I don't want to make this a specific China conversation, albeit it's driving the headlines and certainly is highly important, but this also has to do with business activities around the world, um, supply chain integrity, customer and counterparty uh, awareness, um, no less where your products are ending up and in which markets. Um, so tell me, you know, basically, what are what are corporate leaders to do to uh, operate in this kind of very, very fluid environment where there is so much uncertainty and ambiguity? I'll jump in here quickly, and I say this fully accepting your premise, but there's so much uncertainty with like the regulatory and the policy environment, yes. But there is also a degree of certainty about what it is, at least in the China dynamic, that raises risks. And that can be assessed and can very clearly be assessed um, with appropriate vetting. So if U.S. companies and international companies very clearly look around and say, who are our partners in China? What are their exposures to the military or the military civil fusion system um, based on the actual indicators of those in the parts of the Chinese programs? Um, Similarly, what might our exposures be to, say, forced labor or other human rights abuses that might see policy pushback? Then at least that can provide a very clear mapping of the risks and where those can be mitigated so that uncertainties at the regulatory or policy environment aside, there is certainty as to what exposure exists and how to decrease that vulnerability. David, can I jump in as well? And it really is fascinating to listen to to you, Emily and Michael on, on, on this topic. And we could be here all day is why time is always the enemy. I, I want to, again, step back from, from the question you're posing about how business leaders should respond, because I'm going to get to that in a minute. But um, and this is a bit of a repeat of what I said earlier, but it's, it's a bit more applied. A huge challenge associated with what we are seeing in the sanctions campaign with China that we have seen in the past with Russia, that we have seen historically with rogue regimes um, where there are legitimate interests and legitimate business opportunities, but um, where those opportunities and interests are overwhelmed by um, threatening behavior where those opportunities exist. Um, It's not new in the sense of having um, these sorts of threats. What's new is the degree of the complexity of the requirements and the expectations that policymakers and as a matter of law, um, uh, the, the requirements that U.S. persons are, are, are expected to follow. Um, what makes this so difficult in my mind is that you, you, you don't have a situation where a company uh, owns the risk and bears the consequences of the problem. So I'll, I'll give you a simple example of ABC company um, wants to do business with any particular country or any, in any particular country. And there are risks associated with that, with, with that activity. And those risks um, correspond to potentially negative outcomes for the company. Then the company can make those decisions when the company is, is engaging in those activities and the risks are borne by everybody else. It gets a lot more difficult. And so you may have, and again, this is the nature of the asymmetric um, policy response and, and, and the interest between business leaders on the one hand and systems on the other. So we could say that for any business leader, these 
these sanctions programs present enormous challenges and cost centers, which is which is an understatement to say the least. To your point, it, it may be incompatible with with U.S. economic performance or growth when you have this sort of complex complex set of requirements. And so, from a business leader perspective, uh, a company may say, "This is this is not something I'm voting for." At the same time, um, it, the system in which those businesses operate, which is a free and open society where market integrity is paramount to market competition, um, protecting that integrity so that that competition can thrive um, becomes a, a, an assumption and maybe one that gets overlooked in the short term uh, uh, when responding to threats to that system that do not have immediate impact on any individual actor. By individual actor, I mean a company or even a sector. And so that asymmetry creates real challenges in trying to understand policy interests um, and how those policy interests um, may be putting the burden of implementation on actors who uh, whose own risk tolerances and exposure uh, may be very different. So that, that just backs into the, to the final point I would make on this, which is when we look at these these sorts of developments, I think it's important to distinguish what are uh, the underlying policy interests um, and how those interests may differ between individual actors and, and systems in the way I've just described, and capabilities, capabilities to flex um, economic and financial power in ways that um, could be used constructively or not. But in order for it to be relevant, they have to exist. And what's interesting about that is that as we have um, decided very deliberately um, as a country and as a, as a, as a financial system uh, to expect more from our economic and financial actors to take responsibility for understanding and managing threatening risks within the system, even if those risks are not necessarily um, immediately threatening those institutions. They are collectively threatening to our national security. We've made that decision as a Congress and as a system. Not everybody's agreed with it, but, but that is the direction that I was pointing to early on. And in, in making that decision, we are giving ourselves more capabilities to uh, capitalize on, to exploit financial and economic information relationships and ways to protect our national security. But it may not be used that way, right? And that's what we're debating in part here is the wisdom of policies that, that we then uh, uh, try to exert through those capabilities, even while we're developing those capabilities of using our financial and economic power to protect our national security smartly or not. And the final point is the relationship between the two. The more that you expect from those capabilities to carry what are potentially not um, well understood or agreeable policies, the more you threaten the very capabilities that you're relying on. Because of course, that would then attack the integrity of the U.S. market and the U.S. economy and the confidence that the world has in it. But if you ignore it, you also threaten the system because it is it is by not protecting market integrity that that you you allow for the deterioration of the confidence that people have in our system. So I hope that's that's understandable. It's a, it's a complicated set of concepts, but I think it's really important to understand those relationships in trying to assess um, one. Um, what's happening, and two, the, the wisdom of that and what our options might be. I think those are great points, Chip, and um, I'm sure Michael can weigh in here. You have, uh, Michael has clients, you have significant market participants, including significant publicly listed companies. 
that have invested a great deal of capital, have done it over a long period of time, have worked very hard, have had significant spends, and uh, now uh, around important issues, they have to pivot and sort of figure out how to pivot without uh, a great deal of guidance. And a perception, and let me address the elephant in the room, uh, a perception that many businesses have, and I think you can understand where they're coming from, is that for years, with a lot of positive signals from the government, Commerce Department, State Department, to encourage trade with countries such as China, and following you know these long periods of time and the investment of time and people and capital, they have been asked to pivot very, very quickly. And again, I'll say justifiably because of some of these issues, or arguably justifiably because of some of these issues. And to do so without clear guidance and without a significant runway if there are things to unwind to unwind. And there is a general lack of, um, there's a feeling of a lack of sensitivity to how companies operate and can operate, what they need to do, and and how difficult sometimes it is. And so it's one thing to be conscripted into a geopolitical regulatory scheme. It's another to be conscripted with, we'll call it the people who are giving the orders, not understanding the capabilities of the, of the people who are being conscripted and the costs to them. And I think that's a, a bit of a dynamic. Michael, I don't know whether you picked that up from some of your clients, but I'll, I'll simplify this a little bit further. I don't think the government understands our business. I don't think the government understands you know, the confusion about the regulations they've just sent down. I don't think the government understands sort of the potential costs or first, second, third orders of consequences to our operations in even attempting to comply with these regulations. Have they thought about these things fully? So, Michael, maybe I'll kick this over to you and you know, am I capturing some of the, I'll call it, some of the sentiment within the business community? In other words, they're willing to be on the right side of these issues, but it's sort of, you know, how do I comply and is the government thinking through the different levels of consequences and do they, have they even taken the time to understand the broad aspects of the markets and our businesses and our industries. David, I, I think that's exactly right. There is a great deal of frustration in that respect. You know, we, we've seen this recently with these sanctions. We've seen this over the past couple of years also with sanctions against Russia and Venezuela. There, there is a sense that the government maybe doesn't fully understand the nature of all these financial instruments and, and, and the nature of some of these financial markets, when sanctions were put into place 30 years ago, it was understood. You can't sell goods to Iran or you can't import 
oil from Iran and things like that. It's a little different now when we're talking about sophisticated financial instruments and long-term contracts, understanding specifically what is required. As you say, companies want to comply with the law. They just want to know what the law is. And so, David, I think you and Chip were raising good questions, important issues regarding who bears the costs of some of these activities, or rather who, who um, you know, stands to gain from implementing these restrictions. We've seen that over the past few years across a range of U.S. governmental restrictions in the area of trade and investment, specifically with respect to China. For example, the, the Section 301 tariffs, which were put into place ostensibly to address um, IP theft and related issues, that resulted in U.S. importers paying billions of dollars in tariffs on imports of Chinese goods. And these importers that had built up their supply chain over years are saying, how does this benefit the United States for U.S. importers to be paying these import tariffs? And there are similar tariffs on imports of aluminum and steel. Those were not China-specific. But the question is, how does this help U.S. national security, because those were specifically national security-related tariffs. Um, and, and similar issues regarding um, the foreign investment regime uh, under CFIUS, that the National Security Review for Foreign Investment um, that's undertaken by CFIUS. There'll be specific U.S. companies looking to receive foreign capital, and the companies may not think there's a national security risk, but the U.S. government does because the risk may be widespread, but the benefit to receiving that uh, capital inflow is specific to the one company. So there, there are these questions of the benefit of the financial transaction or the business transaction is more specific, whereas the national security risk could be widespread. Um, and that that's, uh, does lead to some frustration, uh, of course, Thanks, Michael. Uh, in the remaining um, few minutes that we have, um, I think the question that will be on everyone's mind, and I'd like to just sort of go around the room, uh, is with a new administration coming in, what should businesses expect? And just to maybe tease this out a little bit, the profound issues that all three of you have identified as driving uh, sanctions, and particularly with respect to China, but Michael brought up Venezuela. There continue to be sanctions involving Russian companies. There's a evolving political situation in Belarus uh, and elsewhere. Uh, what should companies expect from the incoming administration, a new Treasury Department, new leaders, uh, within the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the Justice Department, uh, etc. Chip, maybe I'll start with you. David, thank you. Thanks so much. And I think that's the the sixty four thousand or the sixty four million dollar or trillion dollar question, depending on your your inflation scale, um, or, or depending upon whether you're a hedge fund or not, right, Chip? <laughs> yeah, okay. On, on that note, I'll just take I'll just I, I'll I'll just take advantage of that reference to note that 
investment advisors that do not have an AML program will now have over $80 trillion with a T of assets under management. Um, but uh, uh, in any event, um, I, I think that is the big question around a lot of these um, policies that have um, been dramatically different over the last four years than they were over the prior prior several. And I'm thinking of Iran, the JCPOA. I'm thinking of Cuba and the closing down of lots of licenses from the Obama administration, certainly the redesignation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terror um, terrorism. Um, I'm thinking of, of, of relationships um, where um, in the China context, um, are we, are we um, targeting the right um, uh, parts of, of, of um, what we see as a Chinese threat to national security? Um, these are all questions that I think people have across the market and across the world. Uh, the, that's half of it. The other half of it, it, it gets to these capability issues. And there, I don't think there should be any surprises in that the continued um, growth of expectations on the market, starting with financial institutions, but increasingly involving the underlying real economy to understand and manage risks associated with threats to our national security, however they are deemed, um, continues to grow. And you've seen that through, I, I think, uh, remarkable bipartisan support over the past really 20 years since 9-11 with respect to the expansion of the U.S. AML CFT regime, um, the, the, the emergence, growth, and, and further development of the CFIUS regime that Michael was referring to, um, and the increasing uh, uh, focus on export controls as part of, a, um, of an economic and financial um, effort to harness uh, U.S. power in ways that um, may be difficult, and in fact are in instances like this, for the market to understand and implement. But if you put on your policy hat back in Washington and you're part of those conversations, the reason why there's bipartisan support is because as hard as this is, the alternatives are all, are often worse, particularly if you deal with them late in the day. And obviously everyone understands that the ultimate threat to collective security is armed conflict. And armed conflict in 2021 is going to be potentially a hell of a lot uglier than it was um, in the 40s when it was devastating. So that, that's the backdrop to all of this and why I think you see strong bipartisan support that will continue to try to explore um, uh, economic and financial ways of, of addressing uh, threats to our national security rather than more kinetic options, while at the same time, um, I, I think, uh, a reexamination of policies that seek to uh, leverage those capabilities. I think you're going to see a reexamination of policy and a continuation of, um, of growth and expectations of our capability to leverage our economic and financial power. So I'll leave it at that. Um, this David has been phenomenal. Emily and Mike, thank you so much for having uh, me. And it was just great to join such a, a terrific group of experts. Emily, uh, obviously, uh, events in China will drive uh, policy here in Washington. Uh, what are you foreseeing with the new administration? I think you said it perfectly there, David. China's approach and ambitions aren't going away, and the structural contradictions between those and U.S. norms, conceptions of the global order, even prosperity and security, are not going away anytime soon either. So, yes, I think we're absolutely poised to see a slightly different approach on the part of the incoming administration um, and potentially a little more consistency or reliability to that approach, but 
the fundamental conflict with China as it plays out as a long-term peacetime one, but a conflict all the same is unlikely to change. All right. Uh, Michael, in terms of, uh, I know your phone has been ringing as companies are trying to figure out sort of what to do and how fast they need to do it. And embedded um, in the questions to you and the advice that you and the firm are giving, uh, the impact of the new administration. I agree with Chip and Emily and the points that they have made. We're not likely to see significant substantive change in the near term um, in the sanctions or export control regimes. There might be changes in approach. Um, perhaps the programs might be more coordinated and, and rolled out in a more efficient way, but the the China policy in particular um, is not something that's going to change overnight. Sanctions, of course, are also notoriously difficult to lift for political reasons, and Congress is, is always fond of more economic sanctions. So with a few notable potential exceptions, like Iran and Cuba, as Chip noted, um, we wouldn't expect to see significant change in the the sanctions regime in the coming years. I want to thank you all. Um, As a reminder to the audience, some additional things that you may want to keep an eye on that in turn can drive the the geopolitics and turn the regulations. World Health Organization is now in China investigating the causes of uh, COVID-19 the issues in terms of um, their confidence level, access to data, people, transparency, I'm sure will be part and parcel of the political conversation and the, I'll call it the zeitgeist. Uh, The FBI continues in their criminal investigations uh, concerning espionage, industrial espionage, academic espionage, failure to disclose various connectivity. And uh, obviously, we're in a highly charged political environment. So uh, all of these things, uh, I think you three will agree, uh, weigh on uh, Congress, weigh on the Treasury Department, weigh on the State Department and various uh, law enforcement and intelligence community uh, representatives, all of whom have a, uh, a say in the sanctions policy. So we'll... Stay tuned. I want to thank all three of you. It's been not only an honor and privilege, uh, but just to maybe further qualify your expertise, uh, all three of you have been truly, truly honest brokers and honest information purveyors um, over the years in a highly uh, politicized environment. And in turn, uh, are providing a very, very meaningful public service to help people understand what's happening, why it's happening, why it's happening now, and what to look for. So, um, Chip, Emily, Michael, uh, thank you again, not only for your time today, but your, I'll say, your ongoing service. Stay safe, and more to come. David, thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. David Lawrence is the founder of Rain. Today's guests were Emily de la Briere, 
co-founder of Horizon Advisory, where she leads the China research team. Chip Ponsi, global co-head of the K2 Integrity Financial Crimes Risk Management Practice, and Michael Gershberg, a corporate partner in Fried Frank's Washington, D.C. office and a member of the International Trade and Investment Practice. If you liked what you heard today and would like to learn more about how RAIN can help you or your business, visit RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.